This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 628. And the quote of the day is, be undeniably good. No marketing effort or social media buzzword can be a substitute for that. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 628, and this is a, uh, I guess it's a bit of a different episode. So this episode is with my friend Scott Rubin, and Scott is a publishing guy. He works for Reach Music. He's been with Reach for 20 plus years and knows everything about publishing. And the reason why I wanted to put this on Drummer's Resource, I released this before under my other podcast, uh, Music Biz Uncut. And I think it's very valuable for drummers to understand this because publishing is where you make your money as an as a musician, as an artist. I mean, sure, you make money touring or you know playing gigs and or doing sessions and stuff like that. But publishing is really sort of the holy grail. That's how people make a lot of money in music because they either own rights to the song, they either wrote the song, or they get some sort of sliver of that publishing right. And once that song goes on and becomes a hit or gets used for a commercial or something like that, then you get a percentage of those those royalties, that money. And Scott has a great way of just breaking all of this down because as hired guns, I think this is something that we don't talk about a lot or maybe don't know about. So when you are co-writing a song or you are in the studio playing drums on a track or you're working on a commercial or something like that, there's a conversation around points or royalties or publishing on that. And I think it's one important to understand, but then two also uh, start really fighting for those, uh, for those points on that on records and, and different things. So, like I said, Scott is the man. He understands all of this inside out, upside down, backwards, and I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's get into it with Scott Rubin. Scott Rubin, what's happening, man? What's going on, my man, Nick? Not too much. First of all, uh, I should thank Chris Cabot for introducing us uh, a few months ago. So big shout out to him. Uh, he's been how, how long have you known? You've known him for a long time too, right? Cabot um, probably had two or three music publishing clients, songwriters, producers that he introduced me to ages ago. And, um, you know, I was, I was always like, oh, this guy is a lawyer, but he's also an agent. And somehow he's at the Super Bowl and he's just like a Superman. Like he's right. very, uh, I was like, I always call him the captain or something, right? Like yeah. he's always... <laughs> he just uh yeah he's a good dude he um definitely has some interesting clients over the years and mm-hmm. i was always like you know dealing with music publishing attorneys and doing with artist attorneys and the next thing i know he's like yeah i partnered with this uh agent you might know of and i was like yeah i know that agent and he's like yeah yeah we handle football players and stuff so right no big like, oh okay cool yeah right <laughs> good stuff so it's interesting that, that we're talking about Kristen about about entertainment attorneys because if you go on to any website uh, publishing you know whether it be a publishing company or or a record label or something like that it says we do not accept unsolicited material and 
so talk about talk about so what is solicited material i think that's a, a distinction to uh to understand what that is so i guess unsolicited material obviously is um if you're a company and you have a website um you would it, let, let's let's use my company our company for example hey can we can we do one thing Sure. Can we actually restart? I want to say something different about Cabin. I don't want to say my company. I want to say our company. Sure. Can we start from the top? Yeah. Cool. Scott Rubin, what's happening, man? What's going on, Nick? My main man. How are you? Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for, for being here. First, I guess we should we should thank Chris Cabot for connecting us uh, a few months ago. Chris has been a, a long time known in my entire life. We grew up in the same town together. And it's been great to see his career, but over the over the years, he's connected me with some really amazing people. You being one of them, so thank you. Yeah, Chris is a good dude. Always had some songwriters and artists that he represented, and if they ever needed some publishing help, he would come to our company and you know say, "Hey, you guys might be interested in this client or that client." So he's definitely a uh, cool individual. So I appreciate him putting us together as well. So speaking of Chris, he's a he's an entertainment attorney, and you need someone like that if you have a record or if you have music that you want to get into the hands of publishers, record labels, anything like that. And and when you look at all these websites, they say we don't we don't accept any unsolicited material. So you would need a guy like Chris or someone someone who's vetted in the industry to pass your quote unquote demo along right. to someone. Is that what that means on the site? Yeah, I I think the idea of that is, you know, in larger companies such as, you know, perhaps Universal or Sony, you know, they might have, um, you know, thousands of unique visitors at their website that might not be potential. They might not be clients, mm -hmm. but they want to solicit material. Um, they want to they have a demo and they would love Sony to hear it. And unfortunately, um you know, the larger companies would only take solicited material. So as you said, it would have to be from someone they know, or it's not even a question of, um, you know, unsolicited versus solicited. I think it's just a disclaimer based upon the fact that like, if you send us this demo, I can't honestly say we're going to listen to it. So right. don't right. send it to us and say, Hey, you guys had my demo. You guys should be collecting money for us. We're, mm -hmm. we're not accepting that material. We don't, touch your material. We don't know about it. You know, it's more of a, um, it's more of a thing where like, if they're going to look for material from someone, they would like it from a trusted source, right. someone that they know. Yeah. Right. That, I, that's like the, uh, the term I always remember back in the day, like, oh, we're shopping labels. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everybody was shopping something at some point. And <laughs> in, in today's world, you, you still have people shopping for things, but you know, it's a little bit of a different setup. You now have, um, places to shop are um, different than they were. They were only record labels at one point. Now mm -hmm. there's production companies and there's artist managers who have their own uh, deals at labels or their, their own deals at DSPs where they could put up their own material. Mm -hmm. So I think everybody's still shopping. We're just shopping in a different way. You know, we all used to go to the, the indoor mall in the eighties to right. buy, right. To buy stuff. And yeah. now you can buy in different places. So. Yeah. Speaking of the indoor mall, I always remember there was a record store that was down the street from my house and my brother, I have an older brother and he was super cool and would always bring me to the record store uh, on Monday night at midnight 
because the new records came out on Tuesday mm-hmm. and they were the only place. So I would come in to school Tuesday morning with like the new Snoop Dogg record. And right. people were like, how did you get that? And I'm right, like, I right, got right. it. I bought it last night at midnight, you know, right, that, because but- those people didn't get to, they didn't finish school yet and they would have to go to school and then after school, figure out a way to get to the mall, <laughs> right. have to either walk or take a ride or a bus or a train or whatever. Yeah. And then, you know, then do it. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a record store fan. I could completely appreciate that conversation. I worked in a record store growing up. I worked in a, uh, uh, a strip mall that had a, um, a great vinyl, cassette and eventually cd type business mm-hmm. and um you know it was it was a great experience i looked at it where you know i would see things before anybody else would and i would always use that as an advantage for myself just being a dj and and knowing things that were coming into the store mm-hmm. um as the you know the, the the wholesalers were looking to sell to the smaller stores they'd be like hey if you're going to take this product well you should take this product if you're going to take this product then take this product right and I would just, you know, I'd wait when we'd get our deliveries and I'd be like, oh, this is something I want to look at. So, yeah, you know. I remember when I was when I was really into hip hop at that point, you know, for me, it, I didn't even have to know the the act. If it was a if you saw the D and the J and it was a Def Jam release with the 12 inch on it, with the mm-hmm. D and the J and the and the, you know, in the record, that was something you needed to have, because right. in, in those days you were looking at your products not only from the groups but from what who who were who were cultivating those talents mm-hmm. and who was putting out those records so i actually remember looking at like a third base record not knowing anything about the group early 90s they're on def jam and i remember seeing step into the am mm-hmm. as a 12 inch and i was like Oh, I have to get this because, you know, I'm, I'm just pro Def Jam, you know? <laughs> right, right. you know, so even if it, and I love, it could be country. It. You're like, what, it has a Def Jam label on it. If oh, it had a Def Jam label on it, it was for me. I mean, I was, I was into Tommy boy and I was into rough house and I was into a couple other labels. Yeah. But, um, I really liked like wild pitch mm. and, um, select when they had, you know, like some real early stuff. I used to yeah. see select, they had like kid and play and, um, Chub Rock and some other things, Real Roxanne. So I, when I was a shopper and a, and a youth, I used to like, I used to literally buy from the, the, talk about brand identifying. I mean, that was it for me. Yeah. I was really early buying the brand, not the product. So is that where it started for you working, you know, working in, uh, in record stores and, and just growing up? So, well, let's, let me set the stage first. Let's talk about exactly what it is that you do right now. And I'm going to, yeah. I want to, cause, and you've had, this journey in the music industry that I want to talk about. So right now, talk about specifically what you do now with Reach Music. So Reach Music is a um, independent publishing company. We're we're a boutique size company, but we do full service, which means we handle sync and licensing and administration and registration of titles. And and we work with songwriters. We um, register their works try to get their works exploited into any creative opportunity, whether it's film, TV, video games, um, any kind of digital licenses. And, um, and then we collect those royalties when those songs are used all over the world and report back to the client. So it's a little bit of a nerdy kind of accounting collection process, but there mm-hmm. is some fun aspects to it uh, when you're dealing with pitching material for sync 
or coming up with some fun ideas that you might, you know, you might have for an artist's new album and how you can digitally market them and, and work with their team. So, yeah, so we're, we're, we're a music publishing company and that has been my focus for about 25 years. Uh, the company was started by a very close friend of mine as your friends with Cabot. I'm friends with this guy named Michael Kloster who started the company in 94. We went to uh, junior high school together and then high school and stayed friends all throughout growing up together. And um, he started the company in 94. I joined in 99. And uh, as they say, that's the story of Reach. So we we started with a focus mainly on hip hop, um, mainly only because that's what we loved growing up and what we were passionate about and what we knew about. And I was able to connect to certain songwriters and producers and artists Mm -hmm. because I understood the material they were making. And um, it was very close to my heart because I appreciated the material. Right. So when I got an opportunity to meet a potential songwriter who might want uh, his royalties collected through reach, he was, let's say a producer or an artist, I was able to really relate to them. Whereas some of the other larger companies, um, you know, when you speak to senior people, they might, be more versed in country or they might be more versed in rock or they might have uh, a different genre that they'd like to target for the assets that they would work with and the the copyrights that they work with. But that's what I started with. And it served me really well, served us really well. And um, we eventually expanded into a lot of other genres and including doing, you know, um, working on uh, artists like we, we collect administration and do administration for John Mayer. Uh, we do administration um, for um, Lisa Loeb, who's a 90s artist. Um, mm-hmm. got a great song, Stay. Um, and, you know, we've we've diversified, um, d- did a deal with uh, Black Label Society for a number of years mm-hmm. um, and worked with Zach Wilde and, and his crew. So um, though we started in hip hop, we really do kind of service all our areas um, that we're passionate about. We don't like to do too much you know, uh, things that we're, we, we, we're not really versed in. So sure. we're not a huge jazz catalog. Even though I love jazz music, I'm just not connected to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I try to work with the things that I'm passionate about that I can relate to. And that distinction that you made about being a boutique company, that's not that boutique. Sure, boutique means small. doesn't mean you work with small artists. Like you mentioned, Lisa Loeb, John Mayer, right. Common, Zach Brown Band. I mean, right. boutique is is the level of service that you guys are providing where you're saying, listen, if you're an artist, you're not just a number that that we're going out and collecting for. We don't have ten thousand people, and you're just your client number thirteen seventy nine on a list. You're getting right. This cool boutique for us is in the number of employees, um, in the size of our company, and in the selective uh, artists that we work with. You know, I mm-hmm. what we've what we've really thought about doing properly over time is, you know, if we're gonna have um, if we're gonna have Zach Brown Band we're not going to have five other artists that are on his level uh, to work with because we want to give him the service he needs and he deserves it. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, uh, him and his management team and and his legal team, they're not going to look for a publisher that has, you know, the, a small company, but does the same thing with five other clients. They would want to be in that lane with us. And I think that's served us well so far. Sure. Might've kept the clients, um, might've kept our number of clients down, but that gives us the attention that we can give to those clients. Makes sense. Yeah. So as an early company, and I experienced some of this when I was starting Revoice, and I'm frankly still still struggle with it a little bit because we're a younger company. 
what was the strategy to go out and get new clients? One, it's a crowded marketplace. Two, you're dealing with some some big dogs out there. How were you guys able to to land these new clients? And were you were you sort of looking for lower tier clients or or using one connection? I'm interested to hear how that goes. So I think it's a uh, it's a large um, it, you know if you look at if you look at it like a pizza pie. There's slices on each pie and each section of our career, we might have done different things. You know, the first two slices, let's say, were very hip hop oriented. And we knew a couple of hip hop managers and a couple of attorneys who were specializing in hip hop with certain clients. And we were able to connect and work with them. And and that got us some other things. And we started to expand from there. And I would say the thing that got um, the thing that got us, you know, some other business is that. We really, when we sat down with people one-on-one, whether it was their manager, their attorney, or themselves, we related to them. And, mm-hmm. and even if they were a very large songwriter or artist, we connected with their people who they trusted. How, do you, how, do you, how are you getting the sit-downs with them? Because I think whether you're a publisher or you own an agency or you're a producer or whatever, yeah. you're just getting started for people yeah. that are listening, if they have some sort of service that they're trying to offer to people in the industry. So I think uh, what has served us well at Reach is um, personality mm-hmm. and professionalism. I... I Remember very early on when we would be persistent with a client, we'd be professional and we might call for that client's business multiple times a month. And eventually, you know, the manager might say, you know what, let's have a conversation or, you know what, I'm not happy with what I, what I have. Um, Right. Tell me how you could do different. So I think it's a concept. Um, or I'll give you 15 minutes if you stop calling me. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but I mean, I have, I have a personal story that um that i could share i mean it's 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 nate dog oriented uh mm-hmm. nate dog was of course part of dre and snoops and the whole west coast crew and he was signed um as an artist and as a publisher to to suge and suge had snoop early on and dre and you know there was the whole death row thing mm-hmm. And um, when that kind of fizzled out and Dre left and people were moving around and they were disbanding the company, Nate had some availability to have his own publishing administrated at one point. And I remember contacting his manager. I had done some research and realized that uh, he was only represented in the United States. Um, I was lucky enough to know how to do the research and look at copyright registrations Um, and I realized that he wasn't getting represented overseas. So I said, you know, I called the manager and I said, you know, you might be doing fine in America, but Nate's got a song with Ludacris and that's top 10 in every European major market. And what do you guys, you know, you're not collecting. What happens to that money? Uh, it's, it's really an interesting thing on who you ask. Some of it disappears after time. Some of it stays until you register the song within a certain period of time. And other people will tell you, um, you know, if you miss the opportunity, you'll never get it. So it really, there really isn't a set answer. But I remember the conversation about persistence and I would call Nate's manager. <clears throat> well, and Nate is obviously gone and and we, we miss him, but I was his publisher from the day I got 
his catalog in my hands till to this day, I'm still working with the estate and still working on Nate's songs. And I remember calling the manager and it was personal. I wanted Nate dog. Like I, I wanted Nate and I said, Nate needs to be represented. And we went over it and over it. And one day he called me and he goes, all right, listen, I'm going to give you one opportunity to collect one Nate dog song overseas only. And I want this advance. And I went, oh boy, you know, that's a lot, I don't know. It's a lot of money. I'm a small company. And he said, well, it's the only way you're getting our business. So I said, okay. Is that typical that they do advances for stuff like that? In the music publishing world, nothing is um, normal. Everything is on a case per case basis. Got you. A lot of people will ask for advances and a lot of people will say, I don't need an advance. I'm making money on my artist royalty or my touring or my radio. And I just want you to collect every dime you can and take a small commission. So there's no normal. So once we were able to get one song with Nate in outside of the U.S., we did pay in advance to Nate and took us a little while to make it back. But we said, hey, we got our stuff and here are the royalties after your advance. And the manager said, okay, great. Well, now I have two more songs to give you. And we started to collect on two songs. And then it became, I'm going to give you one song, but for the world. And after four or five times of us doing the right thing and taking care of Nate and paying royalties and registering the songs properly, we eventually had a deal with Nate Dog, and it stuck for all these years. It's amazing. So it's professional persistence and it's us connecting to Nate and to his manager. I felt, and I spoke to the manager numerous times, I said, you cannot let this go overseas uncollected. It's a very large song. The artist does well overseas and you're going to miss that money. Right. And he right. said, you're right. And I trust you. And it, you know, it worked out over time. Not everybody you work with wants to stay with you forever, but luckily we've had a good relationship and it's worked out for us. So. Nice. So I want to, I like bouncing around a little bit. We were talking cool about you, you working in record stores when you were younger how did how did it go from working in a record store to working in the record business or working in the music business? There's definitely a long <laughs> from the record store when I was a teenager to um, to working in music publishing is a interesting road. Um, <clears throat> I don't even know if I want to divulge it, but uh, at one point I was really trying to be a hip hop producer. So mm-hmm. I was working with young artists and working in the studios and making beats and producing records. So you were always thinking, I want to work in music one was, way or another. Right. I was. I just um, wasn't getting very far on the production end. And right. I had a couple of, um, I had some good people working with me and I had some, I had a little bit of a buzz, but I couldn't get a real break that, uh, that put me to the next level. And this, um, buddy of mine, my brother, this guy, this guy, Mike Kloster, who started Reach, always had been involved with me. And one day he said to me, um, so how's it going on making all these beats and stuff? And I said, yeah, it's going all right. I mean, I think my stuff's pretty good. Uh, I don't think there's, you know, I don't think there's really much room for me to get better. I think I'm pretty good. And he said, oh, okay. <clears throat> well, I don't think you're going to really go anywhere with it. And why don't you just join me? in publishing because he had already started in publishing. So I said, as I choked down a slice of pizza, like, okay, well, there goes my production career. Right. Uh, Okay. I'll, uh, sure. I'll be with you. No problem. 
So we, um, that was the, that was the path for me. I was always involved, whether it was a band, a DJ, always involved creatively in music for a while. I even sold, um, I even sold gear and technology things at, um, at a company in New York city called Sam Ash, Mm -hmm. which is a well-known, uh, musical instrument store. And, was working in the pro audio department and the recording department. So I was staying in touch with all the, <clears throat> you know, uh, tech advances that were going on for production sure. and PCs. And at one point SP 1200s, then to MPCs and ASR tens, and then, you know, certain keyboards and samplers, et cetera, et cetera. And that was probably up to like the early nineties. And then in about 99, I started in music publishing. So it's, you know, it's more than 20 years now. And I'm, I'm glad that my, uh, my buddy and my business partner said, your beats aren't that good. So uh, they're not going to get that much better. And, and that, that was probably the case. Um, so when, how, how tough was it for you to, to think, okay, I was thinking about being a publisher or I was being a producer, but now I'm going to go into the business, into the business side of it. You know, because I think for me, because I, I understand some of this, like I was in a band, we did really well, it was big, we toured, we did everything, never got over the hump, did the sideman thing for a little bit and was like, ah, this isn't for me. So how was it for you transitioning from wanting to be on the production side to working in the business side, I know for me, for years, you know, I was touring around the country playing music and then, and really started to enjoy the business side of it. And to me, seemed seemed like it was a more viable long-term career option versus being, you know, if, unless I'm the band, unless I'm the drummer in, in the Chili Peppers or something like that, the, the amount of money that you make as a sideman forever, if you're not working, you're not getting paid. Um, how, how are you? How did you handle the the transition in terms of in terms of like ego and swallowing it and and being okay with it? I think for me, I was I was um, I don't remember having negative thoughts about it because I remember though I I remember my my production prowess only taking me so far, but I understood the business. I understood where other people didn't have answers, you know, they would always ask me, Hey, how do you register a song? Or, Hey, what does this mean? Or what's ASCAP or what's BMI? Or, you know, um, what does it mean to collect this royalty or how's this generated? I always kind of had an understanding of how those things worked. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was, um, well, if I'm not going to be a producer, if I'm not going to be on, you know, a Snoop album, if I'm not going to get a cut with Snoop, what else am I going to, what am I, you know, what else am I going to do? And I seem to be, talking with people where I had answers where they didn't have answers. So even if I wasn't talented enough to be on the creative side, I always thought that like I had an understanding of the business um, even at that time a little bit, which was way more than other people who were obviously more talented than me, but didn't have the answers either. So I kind of looked at it as like an opportunity really. Mm. Do you see a lot of people in the industry now that have transitioned out of playing or touring or wa- wanted to be a producer or something like that, but, but moved into the, to the business side? Um, not really. I think, I think when you're super talented, it's hard to have both sides of your brain e- work equally. Right. Um, I think <clears throat> for most super talented people, they'll stick with it. And if they don't make it, it's hard for them to transition into business. I obviously wasn't talented to the point where 
only one <laughs> side of my brain worked. It, it kind of worked both ways for me. It was a little bit on the creative side and a decent amount on the other side. But my thought was that, um, you know, most people who are ultra creative, I don't see them if they don't make it transitioning out. I, I see them doing other things. Um, I see them having an aspect of the business in some way, mm-hmm. but not necessarily being um, on the business side only. Got you. You know, Got maybe you. they develop talent. Maybe they weren't a great artist, but they have an ear for production. Maybe mm-hmm. if they're producer they're not the best songwriter so they need to have somebody with them who knows but they're they're connected in some way i don't i don't see a lot of people transitioning out of creative and getting into business personally i i haven't seen that the mapex black panther design lab series snares are amazing and so are the artist drums Designed by Russ Miller, the Versitus Maple Mahogany Hybrid Shell offers a naturally pre-processed sound with just the right amount of low-end, articulation, and punch. A single SAS ring on the batter side only, a unique bearing edge combination, and the ideal depth size proportion all contribute to the perfect balance of strength, functionality, feel, and beauty for all playing situations. This drum is available in both a 14x6.5 and a 14x4 and 5 8 to learn more about the Versus and the rest of the entire Design Lab series, check out mapexdrums.com. Earlier, we were talking about how the music industry has changed over the years, and now it has become this huge, fragmented thing where before there were there were pillars that everyone had to stick to and now there's a lot of DIY there's a lot of control that's in the hands of the artists and and frankly there's a lot of music out there that probably wouldn't have been released had it not been for the internet and and the 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 democratization of of music um what do you think that that does to the quality of the music that's out there now and do you think that it changes the experience that that we as listeners have with music like we talked about before going to the record store you get a record you looked at the liner notes you smell the vinyl you you know all those things which we don't have anymore so you know i have a um i have a very interesting uh thought process about this because i hear people tell me all the time how terrible music is today or how great it was then and um you know, I have a personal experience where I remember my dad listening to certain things and telling me how terrible my music was and how great his was. My, me too. <laughs> right? So we all have that. So, you know, when you're early 80s and you're listening to, let's say, Run DMC and your father's listening to, I don't know, Frank Sinatra or Jim Croce, mm-hmm. who are great artists and incredible, but nothing as a 13-year-old that I was going through was on a Frank Sinatra song or in a Jim Croce song. Right. So I, I remember him saying, ah, your music's terrible. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm now 51, and I think the stuff my son listens to now is, for the most part, terrible. So I, I think it's just transitional that, like, older people think their music is what is music, and younger people think older music's usually terrible because they can't relate to it. So I think I have the understanding that there is a um, 
a transition that you go through. I don't know that I think music is terrible now because there's so much more music out there. Mm-hmm. I think in, in, if anything, yes, it gives a rise to a lot of people being their own artists or being producers to put music together in their bedrooms that they wouldn't have had before. Mm-hmm. I think that's where we're going with all art and all uh, forms of media. Um you know, you you have people in their bedroom putting podcasts together. You have right. people in their bedrooms um, <clears throat> reviewing film. People who um, can make documentaries and, um, you know, always had to go to small studios before or needed financing. And I think technology has allowed us to have a lot more material. I don't know that I think it's worse. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say by the amount of material out there, it's harder to say there are X amount of terrific artists, but I don't know that I really go with that. I, I know a lot of people believe that, but for me, I think if it's going to find its way to the top, it's because it's a great song or they're a great mm-hmm. artist. And I think yeah. other people know. Um, it, it always reminds me of, I remember hearing that the founder of, of Pandora always used to say, we're not the arbiter of cool. And whatever people like, that's what they like. We're not here to say this is good and this is bad. It's we want to put this all out there. And if you like it, then listen to it. And if a lot of people like it, then it'll be really popular. And if not a lot of people like it, it won't be popular. And that's it. Well, it's an interesting way to look, to, to put it as um, <clears throat> that executive or, or creator at Pandora said, um, you know, when you look back to DJs in the 50s through the 80s, radio DJs, uh, they didn't all play the same records. You could be at a radio station in New York City and have a basic understanding as a rock pop format. Mm-hmm. But if you were the guy who did 8 to 12 midnight, you might have leaned harder or classic. And if you did the morning show, you might have had a different thing. And we as listeners liked certain DJs because they played certain music. Right. I don't right. think we really get that anymore. Um, based on programming, the, then you're saying based on the fact that the, you know programming has become uh, sort of a corporate thing, and the DJ is the deliverer of the music and some personality between songs and tells some stories and has relationships with artists. And and don't get me wrong, there are great DJs that break music still. <clears throat> I just think in the older period um, of classic radio. Um, like I talked about brand recognition on looking at a death jam 12 inch when I was young, but mm-hmm. I know my, my cousins and some of my uncles and, and those guys, they would listen to certain DJs because they broke certain records. Right. You know, and I just think we, we live in, um, that was, that was 50s, 60s, 70s. And today, you know, you see a record that my, my daughter will bring me on the, on, on a TikTok video and she'll say, Hey, this is, uh, this is really blowing up. Do you know this? And I'll say, yes, of course. This is a song that was released in 1983. <laughs> Why do you think it's blowing up now? Because people are making videos out of it. But yeah, of course I know this song. You know, So right. I think it's just, technology has allowed us to deliver music in so many different ways. But again, it's across the platform. You could do, like I said, you could do documentaries now that you couldn't do before. You mm-hmm. can make podcasts. You could do interviews. You could be a, a social media trendsetter. Um, and never have been in the spotlight in a movie or anything. It's just, right. you know, people jump on your trends or your wittiness or what you're wearing or how um, how many followers you have. I, I think technology lends itself to having a broader base. And listen, I, I'd like to get, as a, as a someone who works on royalties, I'd like to get paid more 
for the use of our music, which I think is another conversation that we can have in a whole nother podcast. Mm-hmm. The DSPs don't necessarily uh, want to pay songwriters what they should, um, which is another whole conversation. But it's. Can nice- I ask you a very stupid question about that? Yeah. Why it's- doesn't ev- why doesn't every what's that? It won't be stupid. Why doesn't everyone just say, you know what, f you, we're going to pull our music off of Spotify and iTunes and everywhere else until you start paying the artists? Period. Uh, because there's something um, that won't allow you to do that. You do not have the right to pull your music off a DSP uh, for the most part, they can get a compulsory license and through ASCAP or BMI or CSAC play that song in any way they want. Really? Yeah. So So how uh, does someone like Taylor Swift pull her music off of Spotify? So it becomes a little bit of a different slippery slope. If Taylor Swift is the owner or the administrator of her masters, she can make a deal and not give the master rights to a DSP, but the publishing will always be unable to say, you can't put our songs on there. That's because of certain licenses. Master rights owners have different rights. They're not governed the same way as songwriters or publishers are. Songwriters and publishers, do you know, cannot even have a union. Right. There's no songwriting union. There's no other art performed in in the world where you can't have a union, whether you're a TV actor, whether you're a um, carpenter. How does that happen? It's law that was enacted 100 years ago. They did not want songwriters to be able to form unions, and songwriters still to this day cannot form a union. They they don't even really have a guild. Right. Um, but but actors do, and lighting technicians do, and stage and other and musicians do, and musicians yeah. have a union for sure. Which is another. That's another. I mean, that's a whole other topic too. But I never understood why all the all the musicians who are hired guns don't get together and they just say, "Look, if you." And they set laws in place where if you're playing in, in a 20,000 seat venue, this is how much your crew, your musicians have to get paid. 30,000 seat venue, this is how much they have to get paid. Because now young kids will take take a gig and make 500 bucks a week to go play with a band in front of 30,000 people. So <clears throat> the publisher angle of all this is that publishers do not get to dictate what you're paid for a stream they don't get to dictate what you're paid for a royalty on a radio mm-hmm. because of laws that exist for over a hundred years. They're set by the government, right? They're what their, their copyright laws and they're set and they have what they call rate trials. And they try to, you know, they try to um, stay up with the trend and try to, they have, people who are pro publishers like the national music publishers association on behalf of the publishers and the songwriters will go and say, we need more money. And then the DSPs and the other people will go to the copyright board and say, no, 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 we don't want to pay more money. As a matter of fact, we want to pay less, which is what's happening today. So as a publisher, we're set by laws. The only place as a publisher where you can negotiate what your catalog is worth or what your song is worth Mm -hmm. is that's is it. What? Is sync. Got you. In a synchronization, if you want to make a film or a TV show or, an, or any kind of media and you want to use my music, you have to ask me for a license. Mm-hmm. And, and I can, can set that price. I can set that price. And they can, you can tell me, go screw. That's too much. 
or I could set the bar so low that it's free, or I could say I want a million dollars. And they could say, well, you're out of your mind. We'll right. find something else. But I can negotiate it. On, on royalties that come from streaming, radio, sales, things like that, you cannot negotiate as a publisher what you're worth. Right. That is right. the only thing. Can you imagine having a recording, having a movie, excuse me, can you imagine having a movie studio tell you as a um, film goer, you know, you cannot see our movie because we spent this much on it and we want to tell you that you have to pay $35 for admission. It, it, let me give you a better analogy. We'll, we'll scrap that one. It, can you imagine having a movie studio make a movie and then, you know, not be able to charge a certain amount to its distributors to get the film or on pay-per-view for them to say to the cable access people, well, you want to have our movie? We want to make six bucks a movie. You charge nine, whatever. You can negotiate. In right. the publishing world, you cannot negotiate except for sync what your value is as per song. That's crazy. Yeah. So and who that, negotiates the the rate? Because I saw that that you know YouTube got is going to be paying art artists more money, you know, more than pennies that they were paying up to like a little bit more pennies. Uh, so there's but, a, so who negotiates all those rates? There's a huge distinction between artist royalties and and songwriting royalties. Right. So artist royalties are part of the master ownership, the mm -hmm. master recording which is the original recording, the sound recording. Right. Those are negotiated. The record labels have a trade union called the RIAA. Mm -hmm. And if you're a member of the RIAA, the recording, <clears throat> I forget what RIA is. I think it's like Recording Industry Association of America or something. Right. That's Same. And for anyone wondering, if you anytime you see a platinum record on someone's wall, that's an RIAA cert. Right. So they'll say, we're going to negotiate with Spotify and all the masters from this label, we're going to charge X. And Spotify says, okay, well, we have to have these, so we're willing to pay you what you're asking. And if not, you can't have that. As a publisher, you don't have those rights. You don't have the rights to set your rate that you're going to be paid. You don't have the right to pull your material from them either. Right. Because of what's called a consent decree. A consent decree, which is a whole nother conversation, and um, you know, it, it limits the amount of rights that publishers and songwriters have. Really, songwriters, because publishers are partners with songwriters. So that's another thing. Talking about understanding the difference between a publisher and a songwriter, you know, publishers don't make money unless people write the songs. Right. The songwriter. Is the generate? It, 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 it's the genesis of the product that Spotify puts together, or Apple, or mm -hmm. Pandora, or anybody that distributes, plays, or um, or delivers music. Right. I, everyone thinks about the artist, but if you don't have the songwriter, the whole industry collapses. <clears throat> well, for sure. I mean, think about how many artists have delivered songs that they didn't write. Yeah. There's never been a, an artist who delivered a song that wasn't written by somebody. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Even if it was written by them, they're still the songwriter. Right, right. An artist can deliver a song that they didn't write. Mm -hmm. A songwriter cannot write a song that they didn't write. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah, I get it. I get it, yeah. As a songwriter and an artist and a producer, you might have all three things. 
Kanye mm-hmm. West is a producer, an artist, and a songwriter. He has different royalty streams for each. Right. But how that, how difficult that is to not be able to withhold your rights or say in a marketplace, I deserve the right as a songwriter to say what my songs are worth. And if you don't want to listen to them, then they're too high. Right. Or I'll set the bar too low and I'll set the bar too high. But we don't have that freedom. Sure. And I say we because I'm not a songwriter particularly, but I work with songwriters. So, you know, there's a there's a real interesting partnership between the songwriter and the publisher. And we're both, you know, against the, the wall. same thing, right? Yeah, we're both yeah. against the wall with Spotify and YouTube and Google and um you know, Amazon and Pandora and all that stuff. So forgive me if you answered this already, but who, so who sets those rates for how much, how much uh, YouTube pays or how much Spotify pays? So as a publisher, Mm -hmm. they're set by law. Got you. There's a copyright review board that meets every couple of years and they'll tell you what those rates are and they're minuscule. Yeah. If you're an artist and you want to, or a record label owner and you want to distribute your master on their uh, platform, then you could set those rates. You're yeah. not governed by law. Right. So the, the songwriter really is hampered. And there's there's a trade union called the National Music Publishers Association that is um, doing a great job and continues to make tremendous strides to try to get a free marketplace. Their whole goal is not to say how much we should make or shouldn't make. It's just to make a free marketplace, just like mm-hmm. it is for the labels. Right. The labels have a free marketplace to say what we want to charge and what we're willing to accept for digital distribution. The songwriter should have the same right. Yeah. And, and at this point, it doesn't. To also give you a, an idea of how Spotify treats um, songwriters, you know, they're not, only, um, they're not only contesting what is known as the, you know, this section of the Music Modernization Act, the MMA. Right which um, allowed for a songwriter increase in royalties over time, they're not only fighting against that, which they have the right to do, they can appeal the decision. They're not only fighting against it, they're, they're countersuing to make it lower than it currently is. So they not only want to not pay you what they're paying, they want to actually pay you less. And you'll see in the, you know, um, You'll see in the trades, if you read the trade magazines, if you're kind of nerdy like I am, um, all I these new technology <laughs> companies that have problems uh, with their licenses because you can't fully license everything. If you get the rights to somebody's master, doesn't mean you have the rights to the publishing. You have to pay them accordingly. You have to license it from them. You have to make an agreement. Even if the yeah. amount you're going to get paid is set by law, you still have to license it properly. So you look at very large technology companies um, and and interface companies that are using music, like there was a big problem with Peloton mm-hmm. a couple of months ago, the bike company, <clears throat> where they made a big splash in the exercise business and home exercise business. And they were making classes with great playlists and they hired instructors who had you know, some some flair in the music area. They weren't just um, great instructors, but they knew what would get their classes motivated and they picked playlists, but they didn't have the rights to play those music. They didn't have the right to play all the music that they were playing. 
they had the master rights, but they didn't have all the publishing rights. And the National Music Publishers Association took them to court. And eventually they settled and they're working on it. And the, the idea is that, you know, you can't start a technology company where your core of what you're doing <clears throat> involves music and not right. pay the people properly. Right, right. And it amazes me that people like Spotify is and like Audible is the same way. They don't make anything. They they don't make anything. They just Well, there's a there's a whole nother discussion of what Amazon does as a core company and what their loss leaders are, just like, you know, any retail store. Walmart will sure. sell things at below profit to make you buy other things at big profit. Mm-hmm. Um, so Amazon, which owns Audible, and Amazon, which owns Amazon Music wants you to subscribe to prime their amazon prime you know their prime delivery service right which you get 129 dollars or probably 119 dollars and gets you free shipping on all your stuff but it also gives you music and movies and it gives you access to other channels and things like that but the value is in you know 100 million people signing up for $129 a year right that's the money so if they deliver pennies uh, back to you in the micro penny as listening to a Jay Z song for free, so be it. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Um, but Spotify, you know, Apple is not. Apple is not. Um, you know, we like to say in the in the in the songwriting publishing world, Apple is not the devil. Spotify technically is the devil. Why is that? Well, Apple is not going along with the lawsuit. There are other companies that are going along with this lawsuit to pay songwriters less, this counter to the Music Monetization Act. And it's it's basically Google and it's basically Spotify and it was Pandora. Now, they've been acquired by Sirius, which is a public company. Um, but Apple did not want to take part in that. They said whatever songwriters are paid by the government will allow. And some of that is based on the good faith that they have between the artist community, the songwriting community, the creative community, and Apple. In some ways, right. Apple really did save, uh, in, in some people's eyes, Apple saved the music business by yeah. developing iTunes. Yeah, I would which agree. I don't think is a wrong analogy, to be truthful. Yeah. I've actually always thought that Apple did save the music business. If you yeah. look at what iTunes became, the predecessors to iTunes were all individually owned stores. For example, mm-hmm. Warner Brothers had their own catalog store for all the Warner products. Right. Sony had their own products. Universal had their own products. Then there was an independent product, you know, like um, if you were not part of the major system, but you had an independent record, you could put it on this. Mm-hmm. Um, Might have been A2IM or something along those lines, um, which is an indie kind of association and they all had their own stores. But if you were on the Warner brothers store looking at a Led Zeppelin release, you couldn't go by the who because they're on. Right. So they had all these independent digital stores and you only sold your own product. So at Apple, they were like, you know, I know Steve jobs and his team were like, listen, that's kind of crazy. Why don't we all host it in this one place? You guys need a neutral uh, party to allow all your products to be sold. Um, it could have been a cable company that did it. It could have been a, an AT&T. It could have been a Verizon. Right. It could have been um, a communications company. But it turned out to be a, a, a hardware manufacturer mm-hmm. that Apple did it. And in some ways, in, in my opinion, that saved the, the business. I agree. I agree. So thinking about all this stuff that we just talked about, to me, my brain is thinking, okay, you either need to 
be a lawyer to really understand this stuff or have some lawyers in your corner that do, or if you're an artist, what do you do? Do you, do you hire a lawyer or do you hire a publishing company that knows all these ins and outs and, and can protect you? And it's not that hard. It's not that easy to, no, I great, can't hire you as a, as a publishing company. Right. No, great question. Um, I always, t- I always have this thought that I talk to my clients about that. Um, you know, one artist is not inherently more talented than the other. In general, they're all super talented, right? Let's assume John Mayer, Lisa Loeb, Zach Brown, they're all equally as talented artists. Right. What separates them potentially, or any three artists or any two artists you look at, is their teams, their understanding of what the business is like and how they have people around them that they trust. I know tremendously big successful artists that change lawyers every two years for whatever reason. They don't, Mm. they don't like this deal that they did. They don't have a good relationship. The other lawyer got too many new clients. They don't give them them the focus. Who knows? Uh, To me, there's something about the team around you. So I always try to say, you know, you can't be a great artist and be a great producer and be a great songwriter, and a great performer, and a great publisher, and a good accountant, and a good lawyer. You can't. It's just, there are very few people on this planet that can do all those things equally as well. Right. There's a few who could do probably seven out of those eight, or something Mm -hmm. like that, whatever the number is. But not, you know, do do you hire a good lawyer? Yeah, but you know, some lawyers are great at live contracts and some lawyers are great at artist deals, but might not be great in publishing or some might not have publishing, uh, tremendous publishing knowledge, but have great artists, uh, you know, great artists know how and great connects at labels. So I think it really just depends upon your team. I I don't know that. um, I don't know that as an artist, you could really delve into this. I think most people who are great artists, again, have that side of their brain where it works so well for them creatively that they have to have faith in the team that they have that are taking care of them. And and sometimes Mm -hmm. that works out and sometimes it doesn't. Who do you think is the first person to hire? Uh, And if you're building your team, who's the first, because I think people are like, Oh, I need a manager. I don't think you, I don't think you necessarily need a manager right away. Well, I guess my first question would be, what are you? Are you a songwriter or are you a producer or are you an artist or are you both? Are you a band? What Mm -hmm. are you? So I think that depends upon what you're doing. Um, I guess if you're a band, if you're a band, I would say the last thing right away that you need is probably a publisher. I'd say the first thing you probably need is an attorney slash manager. That's for me and an accountant. Mm -hmm. Because if you're a band and you're making money, you better pay your bills. Because right. the tax collector is going to come knocking at your door. That might be the best person to hire, no matter what you are, is a <laughs> business manager. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I really, I, I think it depends. Um, you know, you could be a touring band and not really have too much material in the film and TV world. So you don't need a lot of licenses. You're playing a lot of live gigs, but you're not on the radio. Um, if that's the case then you really need a manager to make sure that your venue or, or a good promoter to make mm-hmm. sure your venue's right, you're getting paid, you're taken care of. I guess it depends, like I said, what the, um, who you are. You know, If you're a songwriter, if you're a songwriter, working with a publisher is tremendously important. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Got it. 
at least an administrator. And the difference between the two is very clear. As a songwriter, you inherently own your song. If you do a deal with a publisher, you might give them half of the song to own together, like a co-publishing deal, they call it. Mm -hmm. But the publishing company still has the rights to administer those rights all over the world. So I think it's important for a songwriter, if they're getting songs into media, to work with a very competent songwriter, but you don't necessarily have to have a publishing or co-publishing deal. Could be an administration deal. Could be something where you still own your copyrights, but there's somebody doing all the work for you and you're paying them basically what is a commission. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So it is, so it's, it's really important. I want to stress that again, to build that team around you. I, re- I remember talking to Steve Rennie. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Steve or not, but name, um, yeah. yeah. And he, he, he was a, he managed Incubus for a while and, and worked at a couple of major labels, but his whole thing too is build your team around you. And, and I've stressed that a lot in, in my other podcasts too, that if, if you don't want to be, because artists, as soon as you start talking about business, they say, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about the business stuff. And I say, okay, but that's fine. That, but you'll want to talk about it when you're broke and you want to, you'll want to blame the manager. You want to blame the attorney. Right. You want to blame everybody else. So I think a team is important, but I also think understanding the business you're in mm-hmm. is tremendously important. I mean, yeah. I like to at least this- read that book, the Don Passam's book, right? Or Don Passman. Yeah. Um, there's there's tremendous books on the music business now. And of course, his is like, you know, the Bible. But, um, you know, the the concept of being in the music business and not understanding the business that you're in, somehow that's acceptable. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't know why. Like if you sold, I don't get it. let's say you sold computers at Dell, right? You were a computer salesman and you didn't know how the computer worked. How could you tell a school system that you were looking to sell 10,000 computers to across the state of New Jersey, you know, for, for, to, to sell to the Department of Education? Right. How can you sell them that you're a good computer salesman if you don't understand how a computer works? How can you at Dell be successful at your job if you don't understand the business you're in? You can't be, right? So it's not mm-hmm. accepted in the corporate world. Right. If you work at Verizon and you don't know how Fios works, you can't work there. Right. 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 So why is it okay in the music business for people to not understand how the business works if you're in it? And that's something I've always been able to to stress and talk about and say, listen, I I might not be able to get you in a room with Beyonce. Mm-hmm. Because I'm never going to make a, a claim that says, oh, yeah, sign with me as a publisher and I'll get you in the room with X, Y, Z. I don't do that. I don't make albums. As a publisher, we don't make albums. Right, right. I can't say I'll get you on this. But what I can say is, I believe me, I understand the business completely. And I will make sure you get what's, what is your money, you know, every dime of it that I can get you. But why is it okay for you not to even understand your own business? Right. I never really understood that. It's like you talk to a producer who's really into production. They understand how a reverb works. They understand how a multi-track works. They understand Pro Tools, but they don't understand how to how the fact that um, you know uh, how to negotiate a license based on a sync request or what's it. 
Yeah. Or you don't understand how your royalties come to you. To me, that's always been odd. Maybe I'm just too nerdy about it, but like I the best clients we have are super knowledgeable. Right. They want to earn the most they can earn. And they want to hold us responsible to earn the most money and right. report them the most money. And I'm on my toes because I'm doing a job that I don't want to lose that client. Mm-hmm. The smarter the client, the more work I'm doing. You know, right. and, and I want smart clients. I have this one client who's a we we at Reach have this one client who's a, a very um, successful songwriter. I'm not going to mention his names, but I'm not going to mention his name. But it, it if he hears this, he'll know who he is, and it makes me laugh because he'll call me up and go, "Hey, by the way, you registered this song wrong at BMI." And it's like <laughs> embarrassing conversation. <laughs> he checks his his BMI and he looks at it and he's like, "Yeah, um, you listed." Um, you listed the publishing company in the wrong order and um, my name's on there, but yours isn't. And my company's not listed, but yours is. And technically it should be both. And, you know, he'll, he'll just once a year come at me with like a obscure title, but right. he checks. It. And I yeah. always, when we have breakfast, I always laugh and I'm like, bro, are you going to hand me a sheet of things at BMI that are wrong? And he's like, no, it's only one or two a year, but you know. <laughs> yeah, here's my punch and list. I, I like to make the excuse and say, listen, how I turn it into them is not always how it looks on the website. I could be doing it right. They could make mistakes. And he there laughs. You there you go. Crack up about it. But <laughs> that's an informed client, you know, and an informed yeah. client, it's hard to not do a good job for an informed client. Of course. Yeah. It's really interesting as I'm thinking about this. And I think of all the, the great players who I know or great artists that I know that just never got over the hump. And I think a lot of times it it just comes down to the business side of it. It really does. And it's like, it's sad to say, but it, there's so many people that I know that just didn't have a team around them, like don't understand the business side, don't understand the marketing side or sold away their rights for something or, you know, it's, a, it's, it's amazing. It really is. Well, I think there's also a distinction that a lot of musicians, um, a lot of musicians aren't credited songwriters. And that's a major thing. You could play on a record, mm-hmm. but if you credit writing that song, you don't really earn anything except for a little union royalty if you set it up right. Right. Um, and I think that's a major, major issue. If you're in the room, listen, if you're a hired gun and you know it, then you're a hired gun and you know it. Mm-hmm. But um, if you're going to play bass on a record, and somebody's not telling you what to play, you're playing it. You co-wrote that song. Now, if you walk into a session and the guy says, play this and don't play anything else, you didn't write it. You were told what to play. Right. So you're a musician. But I think, you know, there was a very interesting line between the 50s and the 90s before publishing became something that you really had to pay attention to. So wait a minute. So if you hire me to play on your record... And I go in, I'm playing drums, and you say, just play whatever you want, then I'm a songwriter? Depends. If I'm running that session, I might give you the creativity to write whatever you want, but I might have said, hey, by the way, I'm the singer. I wrote the song. No matter what you contribute, I'm the songwriter. And you might say, piss off. Or you might say, okay, I'm cool with that. Right. Right. Give me some points. Yeah. Maybe. Or, you know, take me out to dinner. Buy me a fifth of scotch. Who knows? Right. (laughs) Right. How many how many people played on tracks for, you know, a steak dinner and uh, and a carton of cigarettes in the yeah. 50s? And but 60s? I it always breaks my heart about like 
you know, Clyde Stubblefield, who's the most sampled drummer of all time with, with, with a funky drummer. And he didn't make a dime off of any of that. Well, he's not a songwriter on funky drummer. I know. So the way the law works in terms of sampling, yep. the way the, um, the way copyrights are sampled is that he is not the songwriter. Yeah. He's, he's the drummer in the band. Breaks my heart. Um, and as a drummer, I'm, as, as, as you know, I'm a drummer or one of my backgrounds and not only DJing, but I played, um, I can completely relate to that, but I'm also mm-hmm. a publisher and I can understand the difference between being a songwriter and a player. Right. Right. Now, good. I don't, I don't, I didn't know James Brown, never met the man. Could he have said in his group, no matter who plays, we're all songwriters. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, but he didn't. Yeah. I don't see James Brown saying that. I don't know him either, or I didn't know him either, but I don't see him. But, but that's the point. Like, it's yeah. your band. Yeah. And there are a lot of guys who do that too, that, that are, or you can speak to them more than I can, that say, hey, look, we're, we're going to, we're a band. It's, I'm, I'm the songwriter no, and all that. No doubt. We yeah. are going to, if there are five guys in this band and we're recording an album, everybody's getting 20% of every song, no matter what we do. Right. And that works for a lot of people. There mm-hmm. are other people who say, no, that's not going to happen. I'm the songwriter. I wrote the song. You guys play the song. We're a band. We'll share royalties as a band. We'll share right. our art royalties. But I wrote the song. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. yep. Look at look at some of the rock songs that were written. You know. Look at. I mean, I'm a huge Twisted Sister fan, right? Mm-hmm. You don't see a lot of copyrights by the guitar players. They're not credited as writers. Right. Dee yep. Snider, mainly the main credited songwriter. Mm-hmm. And he might have come up with the melody himself. Or he said, this is my band. I don't know. You know, I don't want to put too much in who did what, you know, because just off the off the record, if what, this might be needed to be an edit, because I don't want to say, you know, I would have to look up and see who wrote 100% of what, you know, but. Right, right, right. You know, the point is you could, um, the point is you could have written songs that you wrote and other people performed and still be the songwriter. I guess mm-hmm. it's a slippery slope. You could have yeah. some groups who say we're sharing everything and some groups who say, I'm not yeah. sharing that. With you. I yeah. wrote that. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I get it, man. So well, it's just something that, you know, it depends. Yeah. Well, this has been super eye-opening. I could, I mean, I could talk to you about this for hours. This is, it's one, it's really interesting to me, but two, I think it's very important that artists understand this side of the industry that doesn't get talked about a lot and people just say, oh, I don't know. I'll just, I, I'll just kind of go with whatever happens. And I think that's a stupid approach. So I appreciate you, you sharing this. Um, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. You know what everybody used to say is, I oh, don't worry about publishing. I got plenty of money coming in from touring. Yep. Yep. So, you know, how's that working out for you right now? <laughs> exactly. That's a problem. And, and it could exactly. be, listen, I've, I've had COVID conversations with, everyone it's a serious problem it's a serious issue if i was in the touring business i'd be worried you know i yeah. i'd be worried um if i was a promoter or i owned a venue or i was the manager of a theater mm-hmm. you know i'd be worried um yeah. but um you know on the flip side of that you could look at theater owners and venue people and they say we're making a boatload and these streams are worth nothing when you had concerts yeah so who knows, you know, everything's, um, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll all figure itself out, but, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it shakes out for sure. 
sure. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't see them not having some sort of public performance down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I think that'll happen, but I also think that the industry will probably go in some sections direct to consumer, and you'll be able to, um, you know, tie into a concert that someone's doing in their studio for twenty nine ninety nine um, per household. Yeah, um, and you know that artist, if it was normally a fifty dollar ticket to go see somebody, it'll be a twenty dollar view. Um, yeah. Because you have the same insurance and the same liabilities. And- I think some of that could be cool too. Like, you know, check us I out, mean, like watching someone in the studio or something. Or- mean, not only that, can you imagine somebody who doesn't tour anymore because of the road and how vigorously they would have to keep themselves? Can you imagine somebody like James Taylor sitting in front of his fireplace and having people spend $100 to go listen to James play his stuff? Yeah. Just sitting there playing acoustic guitar. Yeah. 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 Yep. You wouldn't have to tour. You wouldn't have to get a promoter. You wouldn't have to do a band. You need a small production crew, right? And a and a satellite truck. Yeah, you I know? mean, and it's like for a hundred bucks. I mean, I got my parents James Taylor tickets through uh, through Steve Gadd, so I got like the connection, and they were still uh-huh. they were still three hundred bucks a piece. Yeah. You know? <laughs> now Gadd's another guy. I mean, Gadd is uh, Gadd's a great player. We should have a we should have a we should we should think about a songwriter or publishing drummer podcast. I like it. I just had Steve Jordan on uh, on my podcast yesterday. Great writer. Great yeah. writer. On a lot yeah. of um, John Mayer records too. Mm-hmm. Stones yeah. records. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you could look at certain drummers in certain bands. I mean, you know, Don Henley is a great songwriter. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Levon Helm. Um, is probably the most successful songwriter as a drummer. Who was you cut out there for? I would say probably Phil Collins. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. Uh, anybody else? Levon Helm was pretty. I mean, he's a pretty successful writing career. Yeah, not yeah. not Phil Collins. Not Phil Collins. Yeah, yeah. So you know, um, so yeah, maybe maybe we should look at you know like certain obscure, um, mm. songs, uh, you know, drummers in. The, oh well, that you know, if Pert was slightly more at the time, rest in peace. If he if Rush was. A little bit more commercial, yeah. They they were already rich beyond belief, but you know, but right. as a progressive rock band, Mick Fleetwood, you know, Mick Fleetwood is probably up there. Yeah, I think he yeah. always he always like they're always bullshit list, but they he always ends up at like the top of like you know the richest drummer. So it's got to come from. It's, I'm sure it comes from songwriting. Know, as a publisher, I'd have to look up. I don't know if he gets a credit on every song as a writer. I don't know. I don't know either. I would have to look that up and that'd be something like I wouldn't want to promote or not say, because I think Lindsey Buckingham is like the main songwriter of that group yeah. or was for years. Maybe yeah, I'm not sure. Been, I don't but, know. Um, it'd be interesting. Yeah, to a whole other podcast we could talk about, yeah. but like nerdy type stuff. Uh, to me, it's nerdy, but it's fun. And it's, it's, it's allowed me to be who I am so I could relate to a client and talk to, um, you know, I could talk to a rapper, but I could also talk to the head of a trade organization. Right. I could talk to a producer in the studio and understand what their techniques are and what they're using, but also talk to a um, distributor of product. Right. Right. So I think for me, that has, um, you know, allowed me to, to whatever levels that I've been able to creep up on 
Um, it's because of the fact that, you know, I try to keep myself well versed in a lot of different areas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to, it's super interesting to me. And I, like I said, I appreciate you coming on to talk about all of this, uh, sharing all this knowledge. I think it's extremely important for artists. What's the best way for people to follow along with what you have? Should they just check out Reach Music? Where are you posting stuff on your own? What's the best way? Yeah, I try not to post too much on my own. Um, I'll post for the company and, and on Twitter, we're at Reach Music and at Instagram, we're at Reach Music. And, um, you know, we, we try to just let our clients know what we're doing. And, um, you know, we have a website, which is reachmusic.com. So you can always, you know, hit us up with info right there. But uh, of course, like your disclaimer, we don't accept unsolicited uh, material. So good deal. And I don't want unsolicited good. questions either. I have Say to know you for allow you. I said I don't allow unsolicited questions either. You'd have to know me to ask me a question. There you go. Well, Scott, thank you again. I really do appreciate it. Uh, it's been great getting to know you over these these last couple months. And thanks for being on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. I can't wait to do the next one. I have plenty of time to talk. So that's uh, I'm always around. There should definitely be around too, for sure. Oh, I'm down. I'm down. We should definitely do a drummer's publishing thing. That would be awesome. Let's see if I can get my buddy Mike Kloster to do that with us because okay. he's a drummer also. And obviously he's the, the founder of the company and he's totally into drummers that write. So that would I like be pretty it. cool. I'm, yeah. I'm in. I mean, anytime. There you have it, Mr. Scott Rubin. And you can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 628. Also, I don't know who, someone left a review on iTunes. Unfortunately, I can't respond to them and the the person's name, the real name is not on there. So the, the, the review was essentially that they used to listen to the podcast before and they didn't really like it. And then they came back and revisited the podcast later. And now they said that they really liked it and that I improved as an interviewer and all that. And I just want to say thank you for that review. Two things. One, thank you for the constructive criticism. And then two, thank you for coming back and trying out the podcast again. So if you're hearing this, I appreciate your review. And listen, I love five-star reviews and I, I love people writing how much they love the podcast. But I also love feedback because I cannot get better at doing this without constant feedback and constant work. So I appreciate that as well. And if you'd like to leave a rating or review, you can do it on iTunes and it takes about a minute. You've heard me talk about that before. And other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer, Nick Ruffini. That's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon and graphic design by Katherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.